Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Warfighter podcast. Now this week's a little bit different. Colin is away on holiday enjoying himself again, so it is just me for the introduction. But a warm welcome to you listener joining us for the podcast. It's a packed out episode for this week. So I don't want to actually take up too much of the time at the top. All I'll say is that if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're a training and simulation podcast that's focused on defense specifically. We've got a whole host of back catalogue now, over 10 episodes of, I think, really... I would say this, but really interesting content that looks across the top level, systemic level. How do we build better warfighters, which is episode one with U.S. Army Colonel Onel David. And then it also goes into education topics, such as understanding 3D modeling within defense and defense simulation. And also things like robot wars. What is the future of the robotic fighting echelon? So the whole host of episodes there, you can go back and they are designed to be enjoyed. It doesn't matter what point you've come and it started to listen to the Warfighter podcast. So without further ado, finally, uh, we have got the CEO of Improbable Defense. We cover a whole host of information and topics during this interview, starting off with the M word, metaverse. What does that mean? And that theme really does go throughout the whole of this podcast today. We also look at what the future of synthetic training platforms may look like, why it's important to evolve it and to transform defense in order to take advantage of the future. And then finally, we talk about procurement practices and areas in which it's been done well, and maybe areas that it could be improved upon. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce the guest for this week's episode, Joe Robinson, British Army veteran, short-time academic, and then for the last seven and a half years, he's been at Improbable, three of which leading Improbable Defense. Thanks, Tom. Really nice to be here. Virtually. Yeah, virtually be here, yeah. An absolute yeah. privilege that the man who has essentially, not to big you up, made the warfighter possible by supporting us for, it's taken us four months to get you on. However, you've been supporting the podcast for the last four months as well. So we really appreciate it. No problem at all. And yeah, it's a real pleasure for us to sponsor the podcast. I think you've had some fantastic guests on and some brilliant themes. And I think it's a real opportunity to talk about the work that all these fantastic businesses in this space are doing right now. So congratulations to the two of you for making it happen. Thank you. Appreciate it. So let's get on to the main effort for the chat. So before we you know, we're talking about different topics, I and mean, I think we've got a breadth of topics to cover, but the main yeah. effort is talking about your views on the need for complex and flexible simulations within defense. And there's a whole kind of worms we want to open when we go into that. But before we jump into the, that main effort of a conversation, I did promise our listeners that if anyone came on that was tied to the inverted commas metaverse word or the M word, as we like to refer to it, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't let them get away with it coming on without talking about it. And more importantly is unpicking it because everyone has their own description or vision or image of what they mean by the military metaverse. I would really like to know your views on that and hear more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, well, thanks, Tom, and well done for putting that question up front. I think the first thing to say is that there isn't a, a recognized definition of the metaverse. So what I'm going to do in terms of answering that question is look at it really from two angles. You know, Improbable as a business, we're a, a metaverse technology company, and clearly we have two sides to our business, our defense and national security side, and then our metaverse technology side. And certainly in the, in the entertainment domain, the metaverse, from my perspective, is all about creating new types of human experience. So it's all about putting the individual at the heart of a metaverse experience to create meaningful human interactions. So why would people want to spend all their time in a virtual world, right? Why do my boys like to spend time playing Minecraft or Roblox or interacting with virtual reality? It's because they get enjoyment from it. They get meaningful interaction. They're able to get a sense of human experience. So I think, in my mind, the, the most successful metaverse companies that really get their arms around the description, the meaning of the metaverse, is all about meaningful personal experiences and meaningful personal interactions because that means people will spend time there 
And if people are spending their time in there, then there is opportunities for commerce and for monetizing those experiences. The other element to that entertainment description is that the metaverse needs to go beyond existing virtual experiences into virtual experiences that can be interconnected, where you can exchange value between different environments and different worlds. So a connected series of virtual worlds, in my mind, is, is a good way of understanding the metaverse. So just like in the, in the real world, where we can move vast distances and exchange value with each other, a metaverse should have its ability to have an economy where you can move value between different environments. So you're not stuck in one world with one set of value and one set of experiences. This should be something that is more holistic, where there should be an exchange of value. So I think that's at the heart of the sort of entertainment experience about a human personal interaction, getting people who want to spend time in virtual worlds, right? And that has to talk to us as human beings before it kind of talks to us from a from a business perspective. I think the military metaverse, I think there are certainly similarities in that we need to ensure that the defense and national security community sees the value and wants to experience their jobs in a virtual environment. They want to utilize virtual environments more and more. And that has to be something that is easy, engaging, part of the furniture and you know, low friction, enjoyable experience. But really, for me, the military metaverse answers or is a potential answer to one of the main issues that we see inside the national security community right now, which is the world is incredibly complex and fast moving, to say the least. It's multi-domain, so it's very interconnected. There are many layers of activity and layers of data all interacting together. So being in a position where you could start to recreate that complexity in a virtual world will make you more effective in the real world. To me, the military metaverse is about making more effective decisions in the real world through better preparation and better decision making. I like what you're saying around the need to make simulation accessible to everybody and make people want to be in that environment. And that's the thing that I think we've been lacking within defense is that up until now, it is tends to be on the periphery. It's a it's yeah. an addendum to what you're doing. It's not the core training for good reason. I mean, there's good, the good reasons why you would want to go and do training on the out on the ground and do proper exercises. However, I do think and I hope that we are going to change the mindset in defense and go, no, no, this needs to be at it, our core we should be as good at using the simulation technology, simulation hardware to get training value because that will enable us to be better at our job. And there is a bit of a, a mindset change that is required. I think it's going to happen in lots of ways naturally through just different generations of soldiers going through and people will just be more comfortable with using simulation technology and gaming technology to, to experience life in inverted commas. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think the ideal circumstance is that when soldiers or service personnel, you know, they look at their schedule, their training schedule for the, you know, the, the coming weeks, and they see a synthetic environment day, or they see synthetics and live virtual constructive elements to their training schedule, they say, yeah, I can't wait for that, you know, awesome, that's going to be a really enjoyable, engaging and valuable experience. And it's not something that people sort of go, oh, you know, it's not the same as running around with a rifle in my hands on in Brecon or on Salisbury Plain and getting that physical experience as industry, academics, and the defense department, we need to be in a position with the Ministry of Defense. We need to all work together to ensure those experiences can genuinely be engaging and enjoyable and people want to throw themselves into it. Okay, so I'm going to echo back what I understand from a military metaverse perspective from what you just, just explained to me. So you have this vision, and I, and I think I probably agree if this is the way we're going to define it, is that as a military metaverse, we will make it 
more accessible and more engaging for troops to, to ensure that they will use simulation more often, which therefore means that they will become better at their role, assuming that the people listen to this and the companies that are building simulators are building good quality simulators that actually provide you know, valuable training. I think that's one of the strands is making it more engaging. I think the other two you know, legs to the the military metaverse stool is being able to capture the complexity of the modern operating environment in a relevant level of detail that makes training, decision-making, capability assessment, decisions, utilizing simulation more useful and more accurate to fundamentally make better decisions in the real world. The third leg is really about the flexibility component. So ensuring that you're able to actually modify and update those environments, that the metaverse should be a living, breathing, evolving virtual representation of an operating environment, as opposed to a fixed, monolithic, expensive, difficult to update system, <laughs> uh, which doesn't provide, there's, yeah, I can see there's laughter there, which doesn't yeah. provide the, uh, the experience that our warfighters deserve. Yeah, Yes, please. I'll take that. The laughter comes because it sounds easy and sounds just common sense there, but it is such a complex thing to try and pivot and change. And it's a journey that needs to be taken, but I, you know, it's not a simple one. The terrain, sort of the industry terrain is quite interesting as some of the language is changing. Interestingly pointed out, there's no clear definition in a lot of these. But Joe, what would you see in your, in your mind as the secret source so whoever's going to make this work call it the military metaverse and mm. deal with complexity what are the key ingredients that you think would make that successful yeah what's the recipe so i think it's multifaceted i think it has multiple ingredients we're going to continue the recipe metaverse. let's try that it's going to it's going to be multiple ingredients to bring together i think that as a technologist you might expect me to start with a technology ingredient and to say well look we need better technology more modern technology i genuinely think that the technology element as long as there is private capital that is willing to invest in building new products and effectively not relying on government R&D to fund the development of new synthetics and simulation capabilities. So as long as there's that private capital willing to invest, then the innovation will be driven from the private sector to develop products and solutions that can start to get after this problem of complexity and the two technology legs, the flexibility and the complexity of, of a synthetic environment or a simulation for modern operations. So I think that will happen anyway. I think it is happening from the private sector. So I think that the challenge really is more one of, firstly, legacy integration. So what the government can't afford to do is to just rip up all of the systems that they've had for many years and replace them with a brand new software-defined or commercial software architecture in one foul swoop. You know, that it needs to be a gradual sunsetting of existing capabilities and integration. So there has to be an element of integration between the old and the new and a phasing out and a phasing in of old and new. And that's a really, really challenging programmatic problem. I think on top of that, of course, there's procurement policy, and I'm sure we'll touch on procurement at some point in terms of kind of how you even trial, compete, test and field new capabilities, new software defined capabilities in this space. So I think that there's a procurement reform question within that space. And I think the the third element, and it sounds very 
obvious, I suppose, and it's something that many people have talked about. And I know, you know, Alan from Service talked about this in a, in a previous podcast, but the data architecture of government needs to fundamentally change. The access to data coming from the real world and the integration of that data into training solutions and into decision support solutions underpinned by simulation, that is a both a policy, security, procurement and management problem, which I believe needs to be overcome. Now, that all sounds like a couple of very big hurdles to kind of leap over to get to a functioning, valuable, useful military metaverse. But I do think that across many programs in government, we're seeing a number of those hurdles being knocked down already. And not just from a sort of sentiment and policy perspective, but certainly from the actions as well. So I think we can have a bit of hope that that a version of the military metaverse is coming. I don't think it's going to be the sort of ready player one version of the metaverse that perhaps we all kind of hope for in the first instance. But I think that it will require significant coordination and fundamentally leadership from the top of government to create the conditions for the metaverse to evolve in a way that can be most valuable to the warfighter. You just hit on another thing that I really believe in, which is it's all of this, it hinges on education. In order to make the changes you are describing, and like you say, it has to happen at the top. So from your perspective, how do newer companies kind of influence and educate and try and get institutional change for new technologies? Mm. So I think it is top down, but I think think it's also bottom up. I would I call it sort of meet in the middle strategy. So any new technology company in this space, that the, the one thing that they are after in the first instance, more than anything in order to build valuable products is access to user feedback. So access mm-hmm. to people that are actually able to utilize their MVPs, their early technology solutions, and give them feedback. And what a lot of companies done, and certainly we did in the early days before our first government contracts, was to kind of hire in former mission experts, people who'd used this stuff. And I know, Tom, you know, when you when you started your first company, this was clearly your, you know, your thrust as a, as a former operator to bring the lessons that we've learned from being in the military and, and in the, um, the, the broader national security community and say, well, look, this is the stuff that was broken. I was a user. Let me act as a proxy for the real users that are still in government to help us build better technology. So I think that those proxy users are great as a first stance, but it's no substitute in the end for deploying technology with real soldiers working on real problems in real circumstances and i don't necessarily mean purely operations but this could be exercises it could be part of the standards collective training build-up processes it could be pre-deployment training but anywhere where you've got access to users so i think the bottom up comes from user engagement user feedback and users saying look we really want this and this is solving a problem and that's very powerful but it will always be undone in terms of your commercial progress if you're not then able to get top-down sponsorship and i don't mean financial sponsorship in the first instance but a but a champion who can look at that new technology and say, yeah, do you know what? We're going to find a way to bring this through either by running a competitive tender or by putting some innovation funding on the line to kind of field these sort of new capabilities and you know, someone who can champion that from the top. So that then helps you get through the process and the procedure to go from pilot contracts through to production contracts or production capabilities. Capabilities is actually being used to solve a specific problem and navigate that process. So I think you need top-down sponsorship. And, and a lot of that comes from exposure to new technologies, getting senior leaders in front of your tech, being able to demonstrate mm-hmm. it. And there are things like the Army Warfighter Experiment, which is a great opportunity to do that kind of thing. Many competitions 
systems that are being run now involve demonstration phases. So actually turning up, deploying your technology, getting the tires kicked on it, getting people to have a good look at it and going through the process to do that. But then the other thing is getting access to users. And that's got to be not just on industry to try and make that happen, but also on the government to say, yeah, I'm going to give you an opportunity for users to get the hands on the kit and, and to test stuff out. And you know, this is something that the special forces community have done for many, many years, but it's only really now starting to get into the regular military in terms of an important element in procurement. I think top down and bottom up is the key. I think you just rekindled my memory. When I started my VR company, Joe, you were one of the first people in industry that I reached out to. And to your credit, I reached out to you on LinkedIn and you spared me the time. You spared me, we had a good chat and you gave me some pearls of wisdom and pointed me in the right direction and also put, you know, put me in contact with a few interesting contacts that helped me out. So opportunity for me to publicly thank you for that as well, Joe. Yeah, no problem at all. That's fine. <laughs> you know, so broader point, right, which is the community in the, U- in the UK, especially, I mean, I always make this point, you know, Whitehall is small, it's two streets, mm-hmm. you know, there are not there are a handful of decision makers that make all the decisions and British industry or, or, or even not British industry, but technology companies that are new entrants that want to establish business in the defense and national security domain, we have to stick together, we have to help each other out, because there isn't a playbook for how to do this. Mm-hmm. And most companies that try and get into this space fail, they find it very, very difficult you know they could have fantastic products but not understand process or or, or just run out of time given that everything moves very slowly so i think it's incredibly important to help each other out a new entrant and i think if you give a bit of that time over then hopefully the person you've given that time to will remember and they'll do the same to the next new entrant and then we can build a you know i use this term a lot but you know an ecosystem of suppliers that can strengthen the supply chain of the uk and and provide competition and collaboration in equal measure. And you do see that a lot within the veteran community, veteran entrepreneurs that do like to support each other, which is great. And long may that continue in a very scary and complex industry. <laughs> so moving on to a bit of an update, I suppose. Last time we updated the listeners on Improbable, it was for IITSEC, and that was like a December 2022. And I hadn't yes. been provided an update since then. So have you got any yeah, update from your side? So Probable Defense, we've had a really positive Q4 of 2022 and that we secured a vast number of new contracts and new commercial arrangements of which you know I hope to be able to talk more about publicly in the coming months. So that was a turning point for the business where we had the opportunity to effectively get to profitability, which sounds like you know, a very, very sort of grown-up thing for a company, you know, technology <laughs> company to get to. It sounds very old-fashioned, doesn't it, in the space of tech. But really, the opportunity to do that also required a degree of restructuring across the organization, which was a real leadership challenge, real management challenge for me and for the organization, which was to look at our costs and look at the investments we were making and looking at those investments through the the lens of, okay, is this going to be something that's going to enable us to become sustainable as an organization at a more shorter term horizon and have to make some difficult decisions about cutting those elements of the business and investing and doubling down in those areas of our business that were successful and are delivering returns now. And I think this is a tale that is not unusual, sadly, in the tech sector, companies being much more focused on cash flow and profitability and being a, a bit more deliberate and focused around where they're investing investing capital and where they're doubling down as well as where they're pulling back. So I think we're certainly operating within an environment where we're seeing these changes across the board. 
that's been some of the changes that we've had to make an organization. And now we're in a position where we are sustainable as an organization, which is a really privileged and lucky place to be and should hopefully provide the foundation for long-term growth from this point forward. Like you say, it's you guys are not a unique story. What's interesting about the culture over Improbable Defense is that you know over the time, we've got to know a lot of people over at Improbable Defense over the last few four months and obviously over the last three years where we've been interacting with you guys. And they're just such driven individuals and passionate about what they do. And even unfortunately one or two of the team we've been working with have been like speaking to them and trying to support them they've got nothing but positive things to say about yourself the organization and the future of what you're trying to achieve which is pretty unique i think (laughs) and speaks wonders for what you as an organization have been trying to achieve within your culture i'm incredibly pleased to hear that feedback tom and that's really reassuring i think the first thing that jumped into my head as you were talking there was that old often quoted mckinsey phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast Hmm. And I don't quite believe in that. I think it snacks on strategy. You may not eat it, I mean, eat it entirely, but you have to have a business strategy. But I think, yeah, that you know, the, the foundation of a successful startup is all about the culture that you're able to foster. And I think that does come from role modeling and trying to demonstrate those values. The test of your culture, again, it reminds me of, of the military in a, in a small way. It's that people are, until you sort of deploy with someone in operations, you don't really know until they're put in a sort of pressure cooker how they're going to respond. And I I think the test of an organization's culture is when you face adversity. You know, you're not just making fair weather decisions, you're making decisions in sort of stormy seas. And that's when you put your culture to the test in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes here. On the podcast, we talk regularly and more regularly recently about AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and how that's going to make you, mm. know, you know bring a difference to defense. What was interesting during the prep call and we were thinking about topics is that you kind of had a different position on it. You, see, you know the value of artificial intelligence, but you're saying that, that in order to create complex and flexible simulations, it isn't all about AI and ML kind of boiling it back to first principles the technology is an enabler to an outcome right the outcome may be better prepared troops it may be faster and more informed decisions better decisions but in defense and national security it comes down to at a really simple level keeping people safe catching bad guys saving money doing things efficiently i mean these are the you know what you're trying to achieve by adopting any new capability so within the context of that broad reason for fielding new technologies AI machine learning has a, a massive part to play. But what it isn't and what no technology is, including simulation, is the panacea, all-encompassing answer to the challenges that the defense and national security community faces right now. The evolution of AI is incredibly rapid. It's incredibly impressive how new concepts like ChatGPT and the, the open source artificial intelligence tools that are out there right now using these massive models to create answers which are very compelling but it's an area where there's a huge amount of value that can be created for the defense and national security community but we should bring it back down to earth and recognize actually today how artificial intelligence is being used to support decision making and in the vast majority of cases not all But in the vast majority of cases, this is really about applying machine learning. So getting large amounts of data and finding patterns in that data to help inform decisions. So looking at data from the real world and bringing that in either in live real-time setting or historically and layering those data elements together and trying to find patterns. And that can be a really powerful way of improving your decision-making. But the challenge that that approach has is that when you're faced with a novel scenario, 
And the scenario that we can all relate to, whether we're in the defense space or not, is COVID-19 as an example, right? When you're faced with a novel scenario that you haven't encountered before, you cannot use machine learning to provide the most potent tool to help you understand the scenario and drive better results. You have to employ modeling and simulation and you have to combine those components. So you do want to be able to pull out data and you do want to be able to find patterns in that data. But if you can't ask what if, and that is the power of modeling and simulation, the ability to look ahead and say, okay, well, what if this was to happen? How do I play with these parameters? How do I understand what's actually going to happen in my first, second and third order consequences to my decision making? That requires complex, rich, meaningful simulation and synthetic environments to enable you to test these ideas and come up with concepts and new plans and to test those in the virtual world before implementing them in the real one. Now, you can intertwine artificial intelligence and machine learning into that process, which is very, very powerful. Being able to utilize a vast amount of synthetic data when that data isn't available to collect wholesale and using that synthetic data to train an AI algorithm to become more effective and then inform your decision making ahead of time. But AI and machine learning cannot provide the black box answer machine to very complex and novel problems, certainly at the minute. And therefore, you have to invest and embrace simulation and modeling and simulation techniques to help you understand the what if. And we saw this during COVID. We've seen it historically in the defense national security domain. You know, people have been using simulation for the best part of 50 or 60 years to support training and decision making. And with new advances from the commercial industry, whether that's through digital twins or through the gaming sector, the opportunity to embrace commercial technologies to inform decision making through the utilization of complex simulation, I think has has never been more promising. So AI isn't the whole answer, it's some of the answer, but without modeling and simulation, you're not able to provide that edge in my mind that the warfighters should need. Yeah. Hearing you talk all sounds logical. My reflection on it is it's just the level of just how complex building a good product actually is and the amount of different departments within government or research organizations that are required to come together to go let's work together on this because this is the future of technology and just trying to achieve that and how hard that process is is giving me shivers (laughs) (laughs) yes yes more than shivers sleepless nights nights. and and frustrating it's difficult you know it's it's a system that isn't really designed from its foundations to embrace these types of new capabilities yeah i saw a news article about the uk politics talking about whether or not we should move the uk economy onto a war footing now because of what's happening in ukraine do we think that if we did change our mindset and therefore kind of trying to expedite this by suggesting that we go onto a war footing do you think that would would allow us to get the right people in the room and bang a few heads together for lack of a much better term yeah well so i think the first thing is it's a it's a complex and multifaceted problem which is the seeing a new capability that you think could be valuable to the mission and then pulling it through from a pilot project or a demonstrator to something that is valuable and useful to a mission owner. And I think there is a temptation for those of us who experienced the UOR process during Afghanistan, so the urgent operational requirement process, where, I mean, we moved heaven and earth as an organization inside the Ministry of Defense to field you know, new capabilities, which ordinarily would have taken years 
and getting them into people's hands. I mean, sometimes in days, I mean, it was remarkable to get new capabilities out there. And and many argue, and I, I think there's certainly truth to this, that because of the political environment, that there was very sadly, people were dying, that there were union flag draped coffins coming back into the United Kingdom, that there was the willingness to bend all the rules to get new stuff into the hands of the people who needed it because it was going to save lives. Tom, I'm sure you're the same being a veteran, but you know, I, I certainly saw the value of that happening and I certainly saw how new capabilities could genuinely save lives in terms of personal protective equipment, metal detectors, vehicles that had the right level of armor and protection and, and maneuverability, mobility, sorry. So I think that process was of its time critical. But when you, again, trying to boil it down to really simplistic terms, when you look at really what that process was all about, yes, there was the political will to make decisions quickly and to and to look at the standard procurement laws and say, well, actually, you know, we, we can waiver those to get kit equipment out to people who need it. It's really just a balance of risk and time. Of course, it's not always the case, but generally, the more analysis that you do into a problem or a question, the lower risk there is that you will make a mistake in that decision. Well, that's certainly the way that the government has traditionally operated. So if it goes through a series of checks and balances, that reduces the risk that they're going to spend public money in a poor way. But of course, by doing that, that takes a long period of time. Now, when you're building big, complex, heavy machinery, which hasn't really changed that much since the 20th century, you know, except for clearly some of the newer software-enabled advances and things like electronic warfare and electronic countermeasures and the like, then that process is relatively fit for purpose because you, you're making big, expensive capital outlays, big bets with public money, and you have to go through a level of, a level of scrutiny to, to make that decision to get that stuff effectively procured. But some would argue it still takes too long and the costs overrun. And I'm not going to sort of comment on that traditional procurement process in more detail. But when it comes to fielding new software or new software-enabled capabilities, actually those arguments tend to fall away. And the arguments between risk and time is that actually if you can field things quickly in an agile way and test software quickly, you can understand where that software is falling over, where it is going wrong, where it needs improvement. And then because it's software, it can be changed, it can be modified, it can be updated, it can be improved cheaply and efficiently in order to create an iterative service that delivers value rapidly and incrementally to a user, to a mission owner, as opposed to a big bang of getting a capability, which is then out of date the minute that the mission owner begins to utilize it. So do I think we need to be on a war footing? Or what does that war footing mean? I think we need to be in a position that we recognize that with software defined capabilities, there has to be a new approach to fielding, testing and delivering those capabilities. And there needs to be the political will to recognize that software-defined capabilities will be the difference between success and failure, however you want to define those things in modern conflict. So being in a position where you can update, modify, manage, and consume modern technology to give an edge over their adversary, that to me is what I mean by a war footing. It's managing risk, it's reducing time and recognizing that time and risk are interchangeable, and it is about ensuring that we recognize that we're on a war footing now. And that should mean that we should be able to field new capabilities more rapidly and, and recognise that's the key to getting an edge. I think I should just take a moment to reflect that Joe has not only neatly segued to our next question, it's about procurement, but also managed to answer the questions I was going to ask. So I've had to think of another one. Um, so thank you. <laughs> 
Sorry, Colin. <laughs> no, that, I mean, it's quicker that way. You know, <laughs> reflecting on what you said, it's easy to criticise, but where do you think there are examples of government procurement or MOD procurement that is done well in the way you describe? Mm. Are there any sort of glimmers of hope there in terms of, hey, this is an area where they do do it well, we should copy that more? Yeah, I, I think there are. And I think that too long now, looking inwards towards industry, there's been a bit of an attitude of throw stones. Like it's easy to criticise a system, right? It's very difficult, big systemic change in any organisation, any big organisation, let alone government. And actually, there are um, I mean, not just glimmers of hope, I think shining beacons of fantastic examples of where these processes are being changed, not just challenged, but fundamentally changed. I think a good example is the Digital Foundry within Strategic Command under Defence Digital. So that's, that's Charlie Forte's organisation as the as a CIO of the MOD, you know, embracing modern DevSecOps practices, really developing flexible procurement frameworks and trials and testing process to understand and field new software. So I think that the Digital Foundry sort of software factory of defense, I think is is fantastic concept that's really starting to to demonstrate value. And there are a series of, of programs where you can see that value coming in. They've got a blog, which is well worth having a read of. And they've recruited some fantastic people who really do understand from the commercial software industry, how you buy, test, field, secure, accredit modern software solutions. So I think that's fantastic. I think alongside that, you have Commercial X that is being driven by one-star commercial officer in Venture Digital called Dina Krakus. And Commercial X is, has been stood up with sponsorship and endorsement from the very highest levels. So Lawrence Lee, Second Permsec, Andrew Fulzani, the MOD's uh, Chief Commercial Officer, and Charlie Forte, to work through some of these knotty procurement challenges that defense faces when they're faced with modern technology and, and having to kind of buy it and field it and get good value for money. And Commercial X is driving that transformation at the center of defense. Now, I think the success of those organizations in the long term, so that's where I think there's a lot of value being created. I think it would be remiss of me not to call out the likes of the J-Hub and DASA and a lot of the shop window of the MOD that enable new technologies to be fielded. But the challenge isn't getting a pilot contract the challenges in getting your foot in the door, I don't think anymore. I think that's what's changed a lot, certainly since I've been in the business. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge now is about scaling that, getting that out into the hands of people who need it. And although there are clearly organizations within strategic command underneath the digital foundry and that can be integrated within strategic command, very, very important organizations, the test in my mind or the proof that software procurement is being effective across the MOD will really be when the frontline commands get that enterprise value from having an organization that sits at the heart of defense within defense's integrator within strategic command that can service effectively the other services across the Ministry of Defense. And I think that will be the next big step that I, I have belief that the MOD can manage, which is really delivering enterprise value for the whole of the Ministry of Defence. Instead of buying in silos and repeating, buying the same thing over and over five or six different times across the different services, actually beginning to deliver holistic enterprise or, or um, platform level or kind of avoiding the platform term, sort of horizontal technology levels. So those technologies that can deliver network effects and economies of scale that all of us are used to in our normal lives, whether it's Uber or, or Netflix or Amazon or any of those apps that, that ultimately are 
demonstrate a network effect and demonstrate an economy of scale for those businesses, that defence can get after the same thing. And that's what I think will be the next indication to all of us that the really positive headway at the centre of strategic command is going to be more successful going forward. But they certainly had a great start. They certainly got really good sponsorship. There's money there and funding there now. There's intent certainly around the digital backbone and the embracing of modern digital capabilities. So yeah, I'm hopeful and, and dare I say optimistic that we can see this type of you know enterprise software value across the whole of Ministry of Defence. Moving on to something I really want to cover because we haven't covered it yet on the podcast. But bearing in mind, Joe, we've got an international audience here. So when I mention things like four letters, CTTP, it won't mean a lot to mm. them. So I do want to talk about CTTP, but if you could kind of explain to the listener that may have not have come across what CTTP is, explain what it is, and then talk about the value and the potential that that program within the UK MOD has and what it's trying to achieve for the warfare. I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So CTTP stands for the Collective Training Transformation Program. So in really basic terms, this is about the army seeking to better prepare land forces, so better prepare the British army through transforming, so the second T in CTTP, the way they deliver and enable collective training. So collective training is training that involves formations and larger groups of soldiers and service personnel to prepare themselves for operations, ultimately. So that's what CTTP is is trying to achieve. It's effectively transforming their training delivery in order to, to better prepare their service personnel to face modern threats and the modern operating environment. What's really exciting from my perspective, and I, and I say this as a you know as a as a former army officer, is that the army have recognised that they need to change, that they need to <laughs> transform training, that they need to improve the way that they prepare soldiers for for modern operations, and that's you know that's fantastic. And, and more than that, they've managed to stand up a program and get a significant amount of funding for that program yeah. with a phenomenal leadership team and clear direction from the top of the organisation that this is a really important investment. And I can't remember the last time that I mean maybe Tom or Colin, you you all know this. The last time the British Army sort of invested in this type of large scale training transformation, but it certainly wasn't during my eleven odd years. Of, of service. So I think that that's fantastic um, in terms of intent, in terms of funding, in terms of articulation. I think that the way that they've articulated that we're not quite into sort of requirements yet, but the sort of top level vision of what the program is trying to achieve, it's it's all underpinned by this term called the, the FC, another four letter abbreviation for it, the <laughs> FCTS. So future collective training system. Of course, everything in the military is a system of some kind. But this is, I think, a really exciting and well-defined concept, which is, so the CTTP Collector and Transformation Programme will be underpinned by this future collective training system, which is defined in sort of different chunks of description. So you have the idea that they're going to create a system of systems. So I think this reflects on the fact that they need to embrace both the old and the new. So like I was saying earlier on, You've got to integrate some of the existing systems, the legacy systems that are actually doing a pretty good job at the minute, but need a degree of modernization. And you've also got to be able to bring in new capabilities. So many systems working together to give a holistic experience for the soldier. And they're putting the soldier, the warfighter at the heart of this transformation program, which again is absolutely spot on from my perspective, You know, delivering a, a better outcome to get a better prepared soldiers. They're going to lean on an industry partner to lead that integration. So a strategic training partner or an STP 
as it's known to to lead the transformation. So they're, they're asking industry to do that on their behalf. They've laboured flexibility. So being in a position where the system must be able to flex, it must be able to update and change and modify and keep pace with a modern operating environment. It's got to exploit data. As I said earlier on in the podcast, you've got to be able to take data from existing systems, data from new systems and data from the modern operating environment, the current operating environment, and exploit that data. So use it to inform training and to improve training outcomes and to to put a live virtual constructive synthetic environment. So a synthetic environment at the heart of this training system, which begins to capture the scale and complexity and the immersion, the experience that existing training systems can't deliver. And that clearly is a, you know, as a provider of synthetic environment products, that's something that is very exciting from our perspective, because it really brings the utilization of modern synthetics and the ability to integrate those in a live virtual and constructive environment at the sort of a really keystone component of the future collective training system. I, I'm very conscious I've just gone down into the weeds of many four-letter abbreviations and specifics <laughs> of a program, which may, many people may not be too familiar with. But really, it's about making the training experience better and getting people better prepared for modern operating environment which i think is fantastic yeah and, and listen to the way you're describing it you know it is sounds like you know, again call it what you will and listeners will know that my kind of view on the, the military metaphors concept is call it whatever you want it's the next embracing of technology and how a net's going to train our troops and and from what you're describing this is a great step towards the military metaverse, just future training of synthetics within defense. So that's sounding really exciting. And I think that's something I'm going to watch with with keen eyes over the next few years. My experience with speaking to a couple of the consortiums going f- for this is what surprised me by it, I don't know why, but what has surprised me is that the level of openness, the level of outside the box thinking that's going on inside these consortiums as to how do we best position ourselves, what, what kind of technologies the future is going to be. So it's this open-minded nature looking to provide that unique offering, which is again, encouraging to see. I think that coming back to that second T, you know, transformation, many people will roll, roll their eyes at the term who have served in government, but actually, you know, transformation rarely happens and it's very difficult. And there's sort of transformation theatre that is often the term that's thrown around as a criticism. But everything I've seen so far from both the customer, from the industry consortiums that we engage with, is that actually there is a real embracing of the need to support that transformation, put that transformation at the heart of the solutions that industry are coming up with and really, yeah, to embrace new technologies, to think outside the box. And I think it's exciting and, it, and it's something that certainly the minute indicates a genuine desire to drive improvement in a truly transformational way, as opposed to just paying lip service to the term. So my question on that is really, Tom touched on it and reflecting back to what you said earlier about the military of metaverse you know, not necessarily in its first incarnation being sort of ready player one, but maybe steps and a journey we go on. Future collective training system, where do you think that is on a scale of one to 10 then? Do you, or do you think we'll get <laughs> quite far down? I know this, I'm putting you on the spot here. I Ooh. like that. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So to me, the most important word in the future collective training systems description is flexible. And that sounds like it's quite benign, but flexibility is the key to delivering a future collective training system that could reach, has the potential to reach, has the ability to reach to what many of us would think of when we think of the metaverse. And that flexibility requires, and I would, you know, this is now me talking as a technologist, I'll think about this from foundations. 
it will require the right networks. So it will require the right networking solutions to move data and information around the training environment, around the battle space, so that you can actually make more effective decisions. You can actually exploit data. You can actually integrate effectively. You need decent networks. It's going to require cloud compute. It's going to require storage and processing, using of the cloud for both data storage and indeed for processing and utilizing processing power. And it's going to require modern software platforms. So software platforms that are able to integrate data models and and existing systems and new systems to create evolving and flexible synthetic environments to plug into these live virtual constructive solutions for the future collective training system. And all of that starts with a flexible architecture. So you've got to have flexible networks, you've got to have cloud environment that can flex and can be updated and modified. You've got to have the modern software architecture that enables you to plumb all of this stuff together and deliver a, a solutions that live and evolve with the world. And that sounds obvious, right? Sounds obvious you would think about that from a foundation perspective, but it will require a slightly different level of thinking than perhaps defense has traditionally applied to these type of programs, which is to think bottom up. So start with delivering, to, you know, to get to the point where you're delivering an environment for the warfighter that better prepares them for current and future conflict. You've got to ensure that the networks, the plumbing, the architecture, the foundations, whatever terminology you want to use, but the stuff at the bottom of that stack works, that it's reliable, that it's flexible, that it's modern. And that requires a degree of significant technical understanding and solutioning at the architecture level in order to create that military metaverse that we all kind of have in our minds. So if the army can get that right, and if they can ensure that those are, that architecture is effectively established, then I believe that the future collective training system can achieve something along the lines of a military metaverse for our soldiers. Perfect. Well, again, I've learned more four-letter acronyms than, than I thought I would <laughs> during this, this chat. Joe, thank you so much for your time and giving us all those wonderful pearls of wisdom. Before we cut, is there anything else left that you'd like to say, Joe? Are you happy? I just want to say thank you to the, both of you, Tom and Colin, for, for the opportunity to talk about these things. I think it's a fantastic platform to really get into the detail. And yeah, I really look forward to hearing you know the next next load of podcasts you guys will be putting out. And personally looking forward to uh, to my own VP of Engineering, Jason Kennedy, coming on in a couple of episodes. I would just say, make sure you give him a really hard time. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, yeah, make sure you you nail him on the detail. But um, yeah, no, yeah, don't worry, thanks, leave it to me. So much. Yeah, good. <laughs> Colin's job. That's why he's here. But thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thanks, guys. Mega. Now, at the risk of repeating myself, I know that in the new segment we continue to talk about the military metaverse as well. So I will try not to reflect too heavily and repeat ourselves. But thank you again, Joe, for taking the time, and I uh, know really some food for thought there. And I'm about ready for my bi-weekly dose of the news. Here it is. Andy, who is our intrepid journalist from MS&T. Hello, how are you? Yeah, good morning. It's uh, it's morning for me and I think it's afternoon for you, isn't it, Colin? Yes. Yeah. Yes. From Singapore. So, <laughs> trying, uh... to, trying to cope with the delay across the world internet. Every but, time uh... we speak to Colin, is a different place, bless him. Um, yeah. And I love, Andy, you've now been promoted from our tame journalist to an intrepid journalist. So congratulations. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the medal. And for those who don't know me, uh, so yeah, my name's Andy Fawkes. I write for Military Simulation and Training. And also I report on the news for this podcast. And we 
just trying to cover news that we think will be of interest, general interest to our listeners. Shall I just kick off then, Colin? Yes, in, in no particular order. I don't know whether you've mentioned ChatGPT so far. No, so um, I think we were trying to avoid that for a little while because of hype. And we may have been trying to do that, well, the wider world, not MSNT, of course, and this Royal Fight podcast, but maybe not try and use the metaverse word too often because the word has been overused and put down unnecessarily, in my view. But the, the, the reason I'm raising it right now, which I, I think is the first time I've certainly seen it in the UK, is where an armed service, a military service or the MOD have actually mentioned the metaverse, which I think is a good breakthrough. The Well done, go Royal Navy. So the Royal Navy is one of the stories that's uh, in Emerson T and, and wider. This is mainly for bridge training. And it, I think also great for the Royal Navy is they've taken a joint approach, which so this isn't just for surface ships, it's also for submarines. So again, go Navy. But they have basically using VR, I guess the press in the Royal Navy press department, they've decided to say VR is related to metaverse. But whatever, I think it's kind of interesting how they now they've used that word because I haven't seen the British Army or the Royal Air Force use it. This article is really interesting, isn't it? Because effectively, it's a updated bridge trainer with VR for a bit more sort of situational awareness. And that seems to be the metaverse. I don't know if people will agree with that or not. I'm not sure. I would just say that's VR or XR based training myself. But you know, it's whatever. If people see it as the metaverse, then that's it, fine. You know, the metaverse in this sense is that naval environment and they're finding a different way to kind of explore that. Because I think traditionally bridge simulators are like a bridge. Uh, well, listeners physically- would like to know that we're talking about a ship bridge, not a bridge across the river. Well, I, I thought since we were talking about Royal Navy, I didn't make, need to make that uh, comment. But, I just, uh, I'm just thinking about Star Trek Bridge, and you know that's where that's where I'm at yeah. at the moment. <laughs> I think the, I think the clue in the story is Royal Navy, but yeah, but, uh, which I think I mentioned earlier. But uh, anyway, what I wanted to uh, explain was, I believe traditional bridge simulators. This, so this isn't where you're going to see and learn navigation at sea. This is where you might want to learn the basics on a bridge simulator. And certainly I've seen bridge simulators which have the physical mock-up of a bridge. And then out, as you look outside, that is all projected visuals or uh, I guess they could be LED screens. But And I'm sure actually that kind of training is still valid for some types of bridge simulator. But if certainly if you want to get a lot of people through the basics of bridges and how they work and not just ship simulators but submarine ones then this is what they're trying to do here yeah if i was lucky to sell it for my guess is that it's very very portable and significantly lower cost of maintenance than than a kind of fixed bridge simulator is my is my guess there and if talking of metaverse i think you know taking on board what joe from improbable defense his definition of the metaverse i think that you know you can argue it is the military embracing a new technology on its journey towards the future of synthetic or or simulated or technology-driven training, which could be called metaverse or just could be called the next evolution of training. But either way, it sounds cool. And you know me, I'd love to have a go on it. (laughs) We have covered it, but what came out of the discussion was a a spectrum on the metaverse. You start off in early days, it's probably like this, it's VR added onto something. And then eventually it sort of grows and grows into a ready player one type scenario. I think that's where we got to. If I can throw in my, uh, I mean, my view is the military have been doing metaverse things for literally decades, even since the 80s. 1980s of linking live virtual constructive simulations together. In fact, the US Navy linked a live ship with the DARPA simnet in the late 80s. So there you go. That's nothing new in the world. But nevertheless, obviously, the technology is getting better and better. And I think also, I guess those VR headsets could be used for other training, not just bridge simulators. So uh, I guess if you're Submariner, you could use those to acquaint yourself 
walking around the submarine and that kind of thing, which again can be challenging, you know, is a real use case. I think that was a, a good story. I mean, there's more to it. There's uh, You can find it on MS&T and also the Royal Navy website. The last story, I mean, it is related to, certainly to VR, is I think quite an extraordinary story actually about VR. So the Register is an, a fundamentally an IT publication. They, I don't think they would call them sceptical. I think they are a bit sceptical about IT. I mean, they, that's what they say they are. But anyway, they say they have got an exclusive where they've been speaking to academics or in their article they call boffins. So the headline is virtual reality telemetry means you can virtually kiss goodbye to privacy. So that's the headline on the register. And they say boffins find they can identify VR players just from head and hand movements. Now, they call this an exclusive story. Actually, that is quite well known that you can do that. I've seen other academic studies where you can work out an awful lot about people's bodies from them wearing headsets. But why this particular story I think is worthy of interest to us is here is that there's these boffins or academics from an institution in Germany and the so-called anonymous AI they provided the paper to the register and apparently they've doesn't say clearly how they got hold of this data I don't think there was anything wrong about this but they've got data from 55,000 people who played Beat Saber which for those who don't know is a VR rhythm game in which players wave their hand controllers to the music they've got hold of the leaderboard data and they've looked at the data they've been able to I mean the identity of the player might be I don't know just some random name but they've been able to identify from the data who's playing 90% 90% of the time and within even within 10 seconds of someone donning this kit I think it, they could work out who it was in 70% of the time so w- what the story is that for good or ill putting on these kinds of technologies on your body you can be recognized actually very quickly almost what like you're a saying Andy, is there's a way to track people even if they provide anonymous details you can track them between different VR systems uh, it doesn't say that but obviously well 94% of people could be tracked yeah Oh, and, and maybe different headsets give you a different fingerprint, if you're going to call it that way. They may well do that, even though it's the same body movement. But I think uh, this could be a whole area of interest, I think, to people that it could be good for good reasons, you know, that it may be a way of authenticating who's put the headset on. You know, that's good for the military. It also interesting in terms of human factors, I think. Um, but I, I think as humans, we intuitively do recognise people by the way they move or their gait or, or whatever. It shouldn't be that surprising that machines can now do what humans can do, that they can recognise people by the way they walk. <laughs> Thanks to every day with voice recognition, voice pattern. So this would be another, maybe if you go to the bank in, in the metaverse in the future, this is how you authenticate. Yeah, I mean, you've got your, what, by like doing a certain dance routine and it'll be able to work out who you are. Like, you have to do I think a dance we've... routine, just normal activity. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, we walk around with our phones in our pockets, which again, is are all logged into all our details. So, you know, people, Google knows where we are. You know, you log into your Oculus Quest or your Meta Quest headset now and going to know who the user's logged in as. So, you know, it's already going to have a get good guess. So I'm not sure who's going to be then stealing the biometrics or the, this information and then reverse engineering who it is that's using it and the, the threat. But I can see the, I mean, potential benefit, I suppose. But yeah. <laughs> oh no, the, the the threat is you can just if you didn't want this to happen, you can turn you can tell a lot about someone. That there's huge privacy implications of these of these technologies. It isn't just the VR headset, although there's lots of academic work going on, funded by various companies that you can work out huge amounts, like even like your gender, your height, age, even maybe. So there are academic papers that have been been doing these things. So it is a huge privacy concern. As I say, the flip side is you could start using this data for other things and it isn't you don't actually have to dance (laughs) 
they can tell just by the way you just generally move you know, your body is what they're picking up. And I would say your phone, uh, that someone knows everything about your brain from your phone, but now these technologies mean you can tell everything about your body as well. I think that's a very metaverse thing as well, really. Yeah. Cool. Well, Andy, thank you for that quick update on latest stories. Yeah, very interesting. And as ever, well worth digging into the links uh, that we'll provide in the show notes if you want to read and learn more. Yes, and absolutely. And if there's any out there who want to follow up on any of these stories, that would be we'd be great to hear that. So I think I'm slowly starting to understand what I personally define as the military metaverse or as what I now do my brain which is replaced whenever I hear that with the future of technology and synthetic training within defense and that's just what it means it's the next generation of technologies at least from my perspective so that's it for episode 11 of the podcast a normal jogging will commence for episode 12 with Colin coming back well rested from his excursion away shall we say now just look forward to that episode that is a, another bonus education episode this time looking at synthetic internets and the use of that within training which is really exciting not least because we get to test colin's ability at crisis management and hear how he performed using conductors crisis management tool and it is absolutely hilarious so if you enjoyed this podcast then please do think about subscribing if you want to get in touch it's contact at warfighterpodcast.com and i'll see you on the flip side <laughs>